This time on Watchers of Tomorrow. Antibodies, 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 antibodies. everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review critique show that puts the humanities back into science fiction. I am Gep, and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! This week we watched something weird. Yeah, it's a uh, an episode of Star Trek, the uh, original series, uh, about uh, a big space amoeba. Yep, space amoebas! <laughs> It's it's large, it's huge, and apparently can eat entire star systems somehow. Yeah, just like real amoebas. <laughs> this episode is called The Immunity Syndrome. And I, I'm not quite sure how that fully works out. How does one have a syndrome in this case? Why is someone immune? All right, so you could... Uh, no one would actually name anything this, but a syndrome is a group of symptoms that usually occur together. Mm -hmm. You could have a group of systems that usually occur together that make you immune to a disease. It would never happen, generally, and you wouldn't call it a syndrome, but... Well, maybe in this case, the Enterprise is the uh, is one of those um, you know, uh, you know, uh, bits there, and it's, it's, it's you know, as, as, long with, as long with, you know, the, the Borg on the other side of the galaxy and you know, the Dominion on that side of the galaxy killing similarly giant space amoebas... Or we've now had the syndrome, because it's more than one thing. <laughs> the Enterprise crew is a group of symptoms that commonly occur together. Yes. <laughs> this episode was written by Robert Sabaroff, who also wrote uh, two next-gen episodes called Conspiracy and Home Soil, both of which were in the first two seasons when the show was still bad. Oh, um, Home Soil's the, the one with the... Uh, the, the the silicon life form bit that like is like a little glowing light in a in a bell jar. Yep, it's pretty silly. Yeah, it is. It's also like <laughs> the fourth or f so time they encounter silicon life and go, oh my god, silicon life! Yes, <laughs> while Data's standing right there. <laughs> like, well, this is the same as usual, but let's freak out anyway. <laughs> also, there are no guest stars. What about Lieutenant Kyle? Yeah, he's in a lot of things. <laughs> There's like the normal, the normal like background crew that appear in a lot of episodes, but this is entirely on the ship, so there are no special guest stars. Hmm. Does that mean this is a bottle episode? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's an amoeba in a bottle. Hmm. It's an amoeba in a bottle, baby. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Let's jump in because there's nothing to there's nothing to see here. Yeah. <laughs> This is a thing that happened, I guess. Apparently this is still when uh, when George Sakai was filming a movie, so Sulu's not here for a bit. <laughs> Captain's Log, going to Starbase chi 6 to chill out. Everybody's been awesome, but we're also really super tired. Well, the Enterprise, it's on its way back from exhausting missions and is looking forward to some long overdue shore leave. But they receive a message from Starbase 6 that is garbled, but they are able to make out the word Intrepid, which apparently is a Federation starship crewed entirely by Vulcans. 400 of them. 
Spock being a Vulcan in Starfleet is not unusual. Him being on a highly segregated human ship apparently is. So we'll we'll, we'll maybe talk on that a little bit more specifically later. Yeah, that's a little weird. <laughs> Spock suddenly jerks back and looks horrified, reporting that he felt hundreds of Vulcans on board the Intrepid die. A great disturbance to the Force. Yeah, who would have thought Star Wars ripped off Spock in the original <laughs> series? Yeah, just a decade earlier, you know. <laughs> Kirk manages to contact the Starbase and receives orders that they divert from their shore leave assignment to investigate the disappearance of the Intrepid. In sickbay, Spock argues with McCoy about how he actually can feel the death of Vulcans because, you know, none of them understand Vulcans. So it's weird for them to be so weird about it. We're we're aliens. We're really alien, guys. Just FYI, we're alien. You don't understand. He also <laughs> comments on the human inability to care about the death of more than one person. The uh, the one death is a tragedy. Uh, a million is a uh, statistic sort of uh, few. Yes. Back on the bridge, the ship is approaching the last known coordinates of the Intrepid when they encounter a large area of blackness in space. As they get closer, Uhura, Chekhov, and several other bridge crewmen become sick and dizzy, and McCoy reports that half of the crew just fainted. That's a little, little weird. Also, how do you know this so quickly, McCoy? Yeah, I guess they have pretty good reporting. <laughs> in sick bay, McCoy begins to hand out stimulants like candy. Yep, as he does. <laughs> It's one drug or another. Just, you know, uh, give it to everybody in the crew, everything we find. <laughs> uh, at this point, we have to make a decision about how mature we're going to be in this podcast. Um, are, are we going X-rated here? What, what are you suggesting? Well, I have a bunch of direct quotes from the show. <laughs> hmm. Because at this point, Kirk orders that they probe the area of darkness. Uh, yeah, I forgot about that. Hmm. To gather information. Yep. <laughs> it gets worse later. Yep. <laughs> well, I, I guess I can maybe uh, you know, just close my eyes and think about Red Dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> think about spaces, it's black. Things about black holes are, they're black. <laughs> All stars disappear. McCoy reports that the sickness is now spread to more than two-thirds of the crew, and Scotty has noticed a significant drain in the ship's energy reserves. The zone of darkness, which they all, every time they say it, they say, the zone of darkness. It's very awkward. The zone of darkness. Is it's that like a zone of death? Clunky. Yeah. It's very <laughs> clunky to say. Maybe, maybe a zip code hmm, of darkness. That might work better. <laughs> The zone of darkness is having a negative effect on the ship and crew, and in fact, according to McCoy's instruments, they are slowly dying. Oh no, maybe we should, like, leave. That could be a good idea. Except they were <laughs> never ordered to not die. Yes. <laughs> so we're not, you know, breaking your orders if we all die, guys. This is great. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, Kirk specifically cites how they were not ordered to live through this mission. <laughs> Um, good, good job, Kirk, in, in getting us all to feel confident in your leadership. <laughs> yeah, and generally understanding some military stuff. Like I know they they can sometimes send people on a you might not come back from this, but it's important mission. 
But, but as far as I understand it, the live through your mission is generally implied. Yeah, you know, go ahead and try to fight for your life, uh, if at all possible, and uh, get back here, and uh, so go go have another adventure another time. Kirk visits engineering as the ship lurches forward. Scotty says that they just tried to engage the reverse engines, but it made the ship jump forward. That doesn't make any sense. Spock recommends that maybe they should try going backward. That also wouldn't make any sense, but I guess let's try it. <laughs> this works. <And> okay, then. <laughs> Scotty says that it's super illogical, but it's not. Like, it doesn't make sense in physics, but logically it makes perfect sense if going forward is making you go backward. Yeah, if everything is just inverted for some reason. Sure. It's, it's one of those confusion effects in video games that reverse yes. your controller. <laughs> Wait a moment. Maybe they should, should have just uh, you know, like uh, grabbed a uh, you know a, a cure all potion and that would be safe and uh, from this you know effect entirely. <laughs> now this this episode's plot was very difficult to actually write down linearly because although it seems very simple, they present it in a stupid, confusing way. But this is about the time when they start talking about how the Vulcans were too logic-focused to be able to get themselves out of this situation, which is why they all died, because they would not be able to comprehend of backward making you go forward. <laughs> it's just too impossible. This is... I, my, everything I've learned in 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 uh, you know science fiction land school uh, says that this should not be a thing, despite us constantly running into things that don't make any sense constantly. Yeah, but, you they're know. so logical <laughs> they can't comprehend of anything that isn't normal. I suppose there's no you know once you eliminate the impossible, you know the improbable, you know you know could still be a thing. And I guess they have nothing that's just improbable then. Hmm. Later in the briefing room, the ship is still being dragged close to the center of the zone of darkness. Oh no. The power is still draining. Everyone is still dying. Spock believes that this is a negative energy field that is being emitted from something. Okay, so what is a negative energy field then, Spock? What does that mean? Kirk and Scotty have a plan to break the ship free. And I feel like this is one where I'm, I'm just going to directly quote the line... Kirk says, in the episode... Go for it. <laughs> we are being slowly pulled deeper into the zone of darkness by an unknown force. We are going to apply all available power into one giant thrust in hopes of breaking out of the zone. <clears throat> yes. So, they've put all of the ship's power into one massive forward thrust. This does not work. Whoops. I guess you weren't thrusting hard enough, Kirk. <clears throat> it drains their energy levels even more, as it would. Yep. <laughs> like, hmm, uh, warp infinity or whatever didn't work, um, and now we our batteries are half dead. Whoops. They now have two hours until they are dead in space. But their efforts apparently did draw the attention of whatever is making the Zone of Darkness as a large, multicolored, blobby thing now appears in the view screen. So wait a moment. If there's a big, multicolored, blobby thing and it's just kind of just now pulling into view um maybe you could have like intentionally gone forward and then tried to hold on to some momentum as you catapult yourself through the far side and just kind of dodge the thing yeah but they don't know how space works in this space show <laughs> you're either going in or you're coming out there's no fly through <laughs> 
It's amazing to me that they keep putting the ship in reverse in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> According to Spock, this blobby thing must be what killed the Intrepid and is now going to kill them. Yes, and uh, at some point they sort of give some dimensions. I'm not, I don't remember if it's the, the Zone of Darkness uh, or the Zip Code of Darkness, as I want to call it, uh, or the, the blobby thing itself. But it's like uh, tens of thousands of uh, miles across. And which is, I guess, sort of reasonable for eating a, a planet or something like that, but not an entire star system. And I think at some point they just said the entire star system was destroyed. So, I guess just floated around and gradually sucked up stuff. But even then, it should be a lot more massive. It like ate a star. <laughs> McCoy has come up with a theory on what in the world this is. It's apparently a space amoeba. <gasps> Space amoebas! At least an incredibly large single-celled organism. Well, um, I'm guessing it's probably not intelligent if it's only one cell. So we're probably okay with killing it. Spock speculates that it's like a virus invading our galaxy. Except viruses are different. A little bit, yeah. Thinking bacteria. Yeah. Or <laughs> amoeba. Or amoeba. Just said, and is a different thing. Yes. <laughs> You know, viruses have a very different mechanism of what they're all about. They're all about invading and rewriting cells to reproduce themselves. While bacteria are more like, we just want to reproduce as ourselves, like, you know, split up and things like that. And we're just going to sort of feed on all the uh, resources that are about us. Anywho. <laughs> Both Spock and McCoy decide that the best idea is to take a manned shuttlecraft into the thing to get a closer look and maybe find its vulnerables. This will essentially be a suicide mission. Yeah. All right. So um, who is more vulnerable, uh, valuable for the other uh, crew and or who might actually survive? Hmm. Hmm. This is a hard one, Kirk. You have two candidates that would be qualified to be able to do, get information from this thing. Uh, McCoy and, and Spock. Though, though Scotty is the most competent. He's not a, a bioengineer. So. McCoy and Spock actually start bickering with each other about who gets to go on the suicide mission. As you do. <laughs> and after several scenes of agonizing deliberation, Kirk decides that Spock is the best candidate to pilot the shuttle. Much to McCoy's dismay. Don't worry, McCoy, you would have died. <laughs> Spock tells McCoy on the way out as they are bickering that he could at least wish him good luck on the mission, and McCoy does, but only after Spock leaves, just to be sure that he can't hear them, and he knows how much McCoy is a, is a douche. Yeah. <laughs> McCoy, maybe you should, I don't know, get your head out of your ass and, like, recognize that you don't have to be bigoted against Vulcans, especially your friend Spock. Spock's shuttle enters the amoeba. This causes it to lash out and shake the ship violently. And Spock reports that McCoy would not have survived the entry, to which McCoy says, yeah. Yep, told you, McCoy, you'd die. <laughs> Spock moves towards the creature's nucleus, and it appears to be preparing to reproduce. Uh-oh, guess that's why it's bigger than a planet now. Soon his ship loses all power, and he loses contact with the Enterprise, just as he is giving them garbled information on how he believes it can be destroyed. Cool. So we need to figure out some uh, the, where you were with regard to some sort of genes or something like that. It's DNA strands or nucleotides yeah. or... Space DNA. Yeah. <laughs> long, very, very long strands of DNA. 
McCoy checks in on Kirk in his quarters and they discuss how doomed everyone is. As you do. <laughs> McCoy talks about how this thing is like an infection from outside their galaxy, and they're like the galaxy's antibodies. Kirk goes, antibodies? Antibodies? Antibodies, 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 antibodies! Guess this gives him an idea, I, I think because of the prefix anti. Yes. <laughs> antibodies, that's like antimatter. Yes, we could make this work. Apparently, since this thing is opposite day of the movie, everything works backward. So if they set off an antimatter bomb, it will blow up the amoeba like a regular matter bomb. But that's not how antimatter bombs would generally work, unless you designed an entire bomb, like all the components that were also made out of antimatter, I guess. But I can go into what makes an antimatter bomb plot, you know, like how it would be designed in reality, people want. <laughs> Kirk orders them to bring the entire ship into the amoeba. They reach the nucleus of the amoeba. Kirk records doom and gloom, you know, posthumous accommodations for the crew because they're all going to die. Mm -hmm. They drop the antimatter bomb on a timer and run. On their way out, they pass Spock. <laughs> hey, Spock, what's up? Kirk decides to tractor the shuttle out, despite Spock going, No, leave me, I have to sacrifice myself, you don't understand. Um, sorry Spock, but your main character, we can't let you die quite yet. They run out of power just before they get out of the amoeba, and then it explodes. Oh no, everyone died, whoops. Yeah, <laughs> they're totally not fine for no reason, making the stakes of the episode completely pointless. Yeah. They wouldn't do that. Yeah, they would never do that again. <clears throat> they bring the shuttle on board, and Kirk is creepy about a woman on the bridge to illustrate how much he's looking forward to shore leave. Oh no, I think I prefer the episode shore leave than this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was goofy as hell, but it was... There was sort of more to it, I guess. <laughs> they should have at least Just low yeah, standard they should have gone on shore leave. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, this, this episode's a pretty low standard to be more than this <laughs> wowzers so then <laughs> antimatter bombs short short version is you get a bunch of antimatter you put in a magnetic containment vessel and the bomb works by turning off the magnetic containment vessel then the antimatter you know is released interacts with the matter around it uh, annihilates, releases a bunch of energy, and kabloom, uh, kaboom. That's how an antimatter bomb works. Anti-energy, right? Because this thing reversed all the energy. But anti-energy is not a thing. <laughs> uh, you, know, you know, there was, um, you know, I think it was a, a, a Dirac uh, who was working on some uh, you know, quantum mechanics equations. Like, hmm, there is you know, solutions to all this stuff that suggests that there might be negative energy states to you know uh, matter in general hmm and then they realize oh well maybe if there's like some sort of anti-particle sort of thing going on here uh that you know you could you know you could have something with a positive mass but is inverted you know, with all the various uh, you know bits and pieces of it uh, compared to normal matter uh you could, all these things make sense without having negative energy and so that's how I actually figured out antimatter was the thing. 
you know, on the theory end, but then they proved it to actually particle accelerators, things like that later. The only thing I remember is when I was a kid and I was watching Star Trek and understanding what antimatter was, in my kid brain that doesn't understand how physics works, I went, so you could get antimatter and make a solar panel out of antimatter, and then it would run off dark. <laughs> that would be pretty sweet, actually. <laughs> oh, and that, that now has me thinking about um, the never-ending story, too. Because <laughs> hmm. the, the bad guys were able to go underground and then travel at the speed of darkness. Well, it should be the same thing as the speed of light, if you think about it. But apparently, in that universe, it's much faster. <laughs> Which isn't really necessary, given that this is a planet where you can walk to places. Yeah, if you're working on planetary <laughs> scales, the speed of light will get you anywhere you need to be, basically instantaneously. Yes, you know, to, to sort of give it some perspective, uh, you know, a light second so the amount of distance uh, light can travel in a second is from like the earth to beyond the moon not too far beyond the moon but beyond the moon so yeah that can get you across the planet with no problem anyway back to the episode <laughs> that's fine there's no philosophy or, or like anything in this episode oh well, like, you know, you know, there was the mention of the the vulcan spaceship there yeah how they segregate their spaceships well, this uh, got me uh, remembering some uh, sort of thoughts about the nature of the Federation in general. Uh, that the this is it, it, it's sort of sort of you know, from our understanding of like governments on Earth and things like that. You have sort of a strong centralized government with uh, you know various maybe some sort of local or sub governments, you know states or provinces or whatever, uh, all the way down to cities and counties and things like that. Uh, but there's still sort of that overriding ultimate force up top. But perhaps that's not how the Federa United Federation of Plans works at all. Uh, and that you know the, they, they come together to have institutions like Starfleet, but there are still, you know, the individual Federation members are still building their own spaceships, still having their own training facilities, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, so a human could go to Vulcan and enter the Starfleet Academy on Vulcan uh, and then get on a Vulcan ship and then, you know, tour around the galaxy on a Vulcan-built spaceship, but that's maybe unlikely to happen. Uh, and s similarly, Spock being on the Enterprise is sort of more of a fluke other, you know, than uh, the, the norm. Um, and so it, it's sort of a very much a locality uh, uh, sort of thing going on here that sort of has this sort of as emergent phenomenon as opposed to an a, a intentional... You, could, you have to be this species to be on this ship. Uh, it's not because they couldn't afford the makeup. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah well. Especially if you look at what they were doing with Star Trek the Animated Series, they basically just couldn't afford to have aliens on the bridge every week except for the one guy that they had to put very light prosthetic ears on. Oh, in the Animated Series, like, yeah, here's like a, a cat lady, so... <laughs> Oh, maybe we'll start, like, that's going to be a bit. I don't know. By the time we start doing that, that Cats movie will have come out. I I think I'll prefer the uh, uh, Star Trek the Animated Series, honestly. <laughs> like, I enjoyed the, the Cats uh, Broadway uh, you know, production dealio there. Uh, I've only seen like, the version they put on PBS. Um, but I also understand that it's a movie that has the thinnest of plots. 
mm-hmm. it's more about the spectacle than anything there. Anyway, back to the episode. <laughs> well, the things that I looked up were how big single-celled organisms get. How big do they get? Well, so the one that is commonly cited as one of the biggest are algaes. Algaes. The generally cited as kind of a large single-celled algae gets to about four centimeters or one and a half inches, which is about the same size as an egg. You can, like, hold this thing in your hand, and it's a big green egg-looking thing. Big uh, gooey blob sort of thing going on. But as far as non-plant or algae things go, I actually found this thing that's the largest member of the... Xenophyridae class, which is amoebas and such. Mm-hmm. It's a giant amoeba that can grow up to eight inches in diameter, which is about 20 centimeters. Wowzers. <laughs> it's like uh, my mouse pad size here. Yep. I, I don't think I want to hang out with one. Just so it lives you know. in deep sea habitats. I guess it kind of makes sense. You got sort of a big pressure situation going on here and, uh, you're not going to have many uh, natural uh, predators, maybe a few, but uh, you know, you're also going to have a, an environment where you know, keeping a certain level of resources around for your uh, long-term survival might be a good thing. So having a, a big blubbery body like that might be good for even a single cell item like that. Hmm. And what's also interesting, since they keep calling the thing an amoeba, is amoebas themselves are actually big enough to see because they can generally be somewhere around five millimeters. Huge and large. Well, you know, Just, you know, they can certainly see this one at least. So <laughs> yes. So single-celled organism could be big. Like everyone thinks of cells as tiny, but cells are just a particular structure of of proteins. You get, you know, you got so your your membranes and your nucleides and your nucleus and you know the various bits and uh, uh, and you know things that kind of float between. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, what they call a single-celled organism is kind of, you know, iffy, yeah, considering yeah. that most cellular structures have other internal structures that either mostly are complete functioning cells on their own or used to be. You know, that whole something ate something else and that something else didn't quite die and get more integrated as opposed to, you know, digested. Yeah, the one thing that everyone remembers from grade school biology, mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. Powerhouse? Gonna gonna make you work, gonna make you move. Alright, this is turning (laughs) into a very short episode, and we've already had like six asides. (laughs) The only other thing that, that I thought of when they were talking about this is they mentioned a couple times of how this thing was like a virus, we'll say an amoeba, invading the galaxy yes. itself. And that they basically were acting as an arm of the galaxy's immune system. Which kind of reminded me of this thing called the Gaia Hypothesis. Oh yeah, a grand unified overall uh, life form entity that has a bunch of smaller entities all sort of working in uh, conjunction to create a system where various uh, you know, niches of uh, required work are filled by each uh, uh, you know, li- uh, sub-life form, and it all sort of creates a net effect. Basically, yeah. It was uh, started coming into notoriety in the 1970s, mm-hmm. 
but no one would have heard of this until like 10 years after this episode. Yeah, well, wasn't one of the uh, uh, Foundation series by Asimov all about uh, Gaia? Possibly. I'm trying to... I never got around to those. I'm trying to look up uh, the various books here uh, real quick. Don't mind me. Don't mind me. <laughs> well, in simplest terms, the Gaia hypothesis is... It's often criticized for more being pseudoscience-y and sort of paganistic. Oh, but, you know, it's sort of you know, the oneness of nature sort of thing. But the basic idea is a theory of a self-balancing, self-regulating system in which organic life evolves and affects the environment, the inorganic environment, which in turn affects how the organic life evolves. So it creates a somewhat symbiotic evolutionary relationship between the organic life forms and the inorganic environment. Because the, you know, if you have a bacteria evolve that suddenly starts pumping oxygen into the atmosphere that affects the local environment which in turn forces the bacteria to have to evolve again and changes the entire ecosystem yeah, so it's like oh there's a lot more oxygen here um maybe some of us can make use of that or some you know there's just so much now that's actually you know affecting our exteriors here and that can be kind of awkward so we need to change how our exteriors work and then this self-balancing system is so large and complicated that if you actually zoom out and look at how everything affects everything else, you can basically conceptualize the entire planet as one sort of life form mm -hmm. made up of a massive amount of inorganic matter that is being affected by organic life entities that are affecting the matter that are affecting the life entities and so on and so on in a self-regulating way that will achieve an equilibrium of homeostasis and uh and so you, you got from, from there you can get sort of you know concepts of okay this if this is sort of acting as a single life form or something comes in from the outside yeah, you know, that can be sort of you know, seen as a virus, like in this episode, sort of you know, it's argued for, except on a galaxy scale. Um, then you also got folks that you know that claim that like, oh, humanity is like a cancer, then because we tend to use a lot of the resources. Yeah, that's a weird take <laughs> on it. Uh, it's the uh, the Agent Smith and the Matrix sort of take to a certain degree as well, um, except he called it a virus. But anyway, <laughs> that's the weird one in this because it's. The entire idea is that it's self-regulating. And one of the criticisms that's often leveled towards the Gaia hypothesis is that it is implying a directional mm -hmm. goal to nature. But it's actually yeah. not. The response to that was that the, you are actually putting a directional goal on it by leveling that criticism. It's just a self-regulating homeostasis. So... You know, in the event that humans do mess up the environment to the point that humans can't live on the planet anymore, it's not going to destroy everything. It's just going to alter the environment, which in turn will alter the life forms that live in the environment again until everything reaches its homeostatic balance. It's just going to rebalance. Yeah. Saying that humanity is a cancer on the planet is implying there's some sort of 
you know, grand design or plan that needs to be shot for instead of it just being a self-regulatory exactly. process. If humans use up too many resources for humans to live, all the humans go away and things rebalance and, from uh, there. We have a, a radically different planet, but it continues on because the, the planet itself, it doesn't care, you know, if we exist or not. We care if we exist or not, but it is not going to be uh, you know, the end of the world in the literal sense, if, you know, humanity is wiped out and a whole new sort of uh, ecosystem takes uh, the place, the current one. I, I found the, the the book, by the way. Foundation's Edge. <laughs> so taking that out to sort of, I, I suppose once you start interconnecting entire planet ecosystems by traveling between them like that, you could start expanding the Gaia hypothesis to be on a more galactic or scale. Or a Galaxia scale. Ho-ho! That's also from the Foundation series. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I guess to a certain extent, though, in this particular episode, there is the, you know, sort of the implication that that the, the Federation and the Enterprise specifically is acting as, a, as the immune system, but what if there was no space traveling civilizations at this point in the timeline so that a giant space amoeba like this was able to pop in, you know, reproduce and just start gobbling up the entire galaxy. But then get one. What then? How, how, how could we, you know, you know, you know, you know, have this space amoeba thing going on and that just totally wipes out its entire environment and that, all your life possible in the universe other than itself be you know is 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 wiped out in the long term scale of things unless we just happen to get lucky and not have our galaxy targeted uh, sooner rather than uh, you know rather than later what then get get one yeah, tell us <laughs> it just happens <laughs> that's a part of the that's actually a part of evolutionary theory that a lot of people miss it's not survival of the fittest it's survival of the fittest that happened to not get buried in that one random yep. mudslide. <laughs> a certain amount of luck you have to sort of get through. Uh, you know, it is there's uh, stuff talked about in the uh, you know the, the search for extraterrestrial life in like you know the real world here. Um, you know, it's like okay, we got this thing called the Drake Equation. It says there should be so much alien civilization out there, but we're not seeing any. Uh, and, you know, and uh, so maybe there's these great filters. And uh, a lot of them sort of come down to, you know, maybe reaching intelligent life is impossible other than, you know, freak accidents or something like that. Um, but a lot of the sort of discussions there sort of leave out the happenstance that some, some that there might be some, you know, you know, set of filters that just happen to cause a lot of bad luck for potential alien civilizations. And we just got super lucky. People love that one, but it's also an interesting idea to assume. Again, it's kind of ascribing point and purpose to these mm -hmm. systems. That just because life generates on a planet that's not Earth, that it is naturally going to, one, tend towards complex life forms and intelligence to be the same kind of intelligent life form that we think of as intelligent, mm -hmm. and three, invent detectable radiation as a major communication form. Yeah, you know, that's, you know... That's yeah, a lot of if. Like, even on Earth, it took, like, billions of years for us to get 
you know, beyond the single cell life form sort of situation. Cause there was really no need. <laughs> life was like, yeah, we're, we're good. We're, we don't really need to change that much. You know, the, the, the changes in the environment are very, you know, minor overall. And there's enough of us that we don't need to do anything weird. And, uh, you know, if anything, you know, and, and going back to the, the mitochondria stuff again, it kind of was a freak accident that it happened at all. You know, from, you know, sort of one of the uh, uh, things people sort of argue that if that had not happened, it might not have ever happened, you know, uh, later in, in, in uh, you know, throughout time. And so it is sort of, it's very much, as you said, a, a bit of a leap that, if A, then B, unless there's a filter. If A does not necessarily lead to B, it can, but does not necessarily go that way. Yes, we discovered life on an alien planet. It is the planet of the slime mold. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, in uh, you know our, our my tabletop game there, uh, you know we've I've shown you guys a couple alien planets there. Uh, one of them was actually terraformed entirely by humans. Uh, that had a mostly okay atmosphere for us, but it was you know it was you know the but there's no native life, and so everything there was was brought from other places. And then the other the other planet I showed you guys, it's like yeah, there's a planet that had some weird stuff happened, and most things on it are dead. But you know the the place there is supposed to be fairly alien, though there are th- some things that are familiar. And it is you know and I haven't had much chance to show you guys much other stuff, but a lot of it's. Planet of the slime molds over and over again. So <laughs> now it's just since we're talking about this and we don't have a lot else for this episode except maybe the glorification of self sacrifice. Well, I, I, I did technically have one more thing. Mm. So big giant monsters. Is this single celled life form thing a space kaiju? Uh, I suppose. <laughs> uh, Isn't it like the blob? I guess that's sort of in the same uh, wheelhouse as the Blob to a certain degree, but I was I was sort of you know after the uh, the episodes like hmm, this is kind of reminding me of like you know the the whole fifties you know a giant ants from them or whatever it was and uh, you know you know Godzilla and things like that. The, there's uh, giant monsters that are kind of allegories for something else. Uh, that you know the you know, Godzilla and you know the ants and things like that are fear you know uh, originally of you know atomic war nuclear power that sort of thing, uh, and then you know later ones you know you know lead to different sort of uh, you know general fears in society that these giant seemingly unstoppable monsters sort of represent, and so I was thinking, was there like some sort of big fear about viruses outbreak in the late sixties or? Or is that more of a 90s thing? No, there were... Let me see. I cannot remember when they invented some of those vaccines. Because you definitely had polio scares in the 50s and mm-hmm. 60s. So there were there have always been virus and other types of scares. Though you could still have it be just a fear of of nuclear weapons like the uh you know just unknown force of nature things coming in from outside of the galaxy they always do this it's that and the doomsday machine are very similar in those yeah, regards 
Yeah, well, I think I, as far as episodes goes, Doom Day Machine's way better, though. <laughs> well, if you think about it, it kind of reminds me of... Uh, it's not conceptually done as well, but did you ever see the Japanese horror movie Haosu? I don't think so. The name sounds familiar for some reason. So it's a very kind of absurdist, almost comedic horror movie. Mm-hmm. Like, just random things happen. There's talking watermelons at one point. Mm. Is just incredibly strange, and I would I watched it in the theater a little while ago. They were having kind of a horror night at a local local place here. It was very strange. I was like, this has to be representational of something. So I looked up some interviews, and the creator said that basically, the only way that you can conceive of something as weird and out there and unknowable as like an atomic weapon is by just being absurdist with it everyone in the movie basically dies because it's a horror movie but they die in such absurd random out of nowhere ways because that's basically how you can conceptualize something as horrible as a nuclear weapon the uh, creeping you know inevitable death of all well just the absurdity of it there's this thing that uh, i keep having conversations with people about this and it's this kind of idea of the dark comedies that people don't seem to understand. Uh, once things get horrible enough, they start becoming funny. Just because the amount of horrible at a certain point turns into absurdity. Yeah, so uh, basically the Final Destination movies. <laughs> yeah. It's like... It's like that, but you can you can have things like this. That's one of the reasons that, that BoJack Horseman on Netflix is such a good dark comedy show, because just the amount of bad things that happen, eventually it stacks up into something funny, because it's just such a horrific comedy mm-hmm. of errors. You know, it's, it's so, so terrible. So I don't think they do it with as much purpose in these episodes, but kind of just the random absurdity of it is like oh giant space amoeba all yes. of a sudden <laughs> where'd it come from we don't know it's just sort of here we gotta deal with it now i guess <laughs> are we gonna be able to uh do it without getting ourselves killed well maybe i guess <laughs> if we do it probably won't make sense but that's okay <laughs> hmm but yeah, of course. I've, I mean, it's it's actually just so... I don't think about it because it would basically be just, just repeating ourselves every episode. <laughs> but this was the nuclear era. There was the war in Vietnam. There were escalating tensions with Russia. It's not that different from now. <laughs> and like basically every single thing they encounter on this show is an allegory for nuclear weapons or russia oh, but yeah or russian nuclear or, or russian spies <laughs> yeah uh, i think the next one is going to be an allegory for vietnam uh, probably <laughs> proxy war yeah sounds like it <laughs> mm-hmm. but um yeah so that's kind of all i had <laughs> so uh this 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 virus might count as a kaiju situation, big giant monster representing something, but yeah, it's not a very good one. I didn't have any particularly interesting takes on this one, but there is something to look at with the 
absurd glorification of self-sacrifice to the point that two characters are actively at each other's throats over who gets to sacrifice themselves for the greater good of the universe. Well, there is maybe another interpretation for that. You know, it could it could be all, as it appears to be on the surface of, you know, I need to be the strong jawed, you know, action hero that puts it on the line and and you know, sacrifices himself and uh, for, you know, both the lives of my my crew members but also the glory of doing the right thing. Or they are way more caring about each other than they want to let on. Uh, and, you know, Spock is being Spock. You know, I have no emotions at all, for sure, real guys. Uh, and so he's doing all he can to sort of dissuade McCoy from, you know, taking the risk. Well, McCoy's like, damn it, I'm, I don't love you, Spock. I, I, I hate you. Yeah. Um, I'm the most qualified to do this, Kirk. Don't let him go. I have to be the one. <sighs> I do feel like. That's was one of the ways that they wanted you to kind of mm -hmm. read it. But given everything they've shown you about these two characters for two seasons, yeah, it's a bit of a stretch. The only way I could interpret this is I am so tired of having you around, I would weather go die in the amoeba. <laughs> well, I'm going to go die in a fire. I mean, amoeba. Um, laters. Um, no, the other guy. Oh, damn it. <laughs> I'm. He's going to die. He's going to give a memorial, and I'm going to have to put up with that. I'm going to have to say good things about him. Damn it. <laughs> All right. This is going to be a short yes. episode, but since I think we've run out of everything. Uh, there's only a, you know, the, the word list is pretty, pretty short, you know, for how many points we got here. There's a low scoring episode. <laughs> oh, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. But anyway, it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show. Hey everybody, we're here on the game show portion of the show where we've tallied up all the various points, all four of them, I guess, for three awards, and um, we have, uh, I got some prizes to hold out. Well, Gebert has the prizes, I just give the announcement for it. The first uh, award is the Giant Enemy Crab Award, which goes to the space bacteria from beyond the galaxy for having an inexplicable weak point in this DNA or something, and it's totally accessible via ships, so you can just fly in there and shoot it. What does it win, Gebert? <laughs> I was going to give the giant amoeba some stereotypical red barrels, because you may as well go full video game. But then I realized they blew it up with an explosive yep. barrel. <laughs> well, you could add a couple more barrels, and then the Enterprise gets destroyed too. How about that? <laughs> Danger close. Then at least get revenge at its death. <laughs> oh. Our second, uh, uh, you know, uh, award dealio here is the Assignment Death Award, which goes to Spock for going on what uh, what might very well be a suicide mission for the greater good, I guess. What does he win, Gepwin? Spock gets that glorious, glorious plot armor. He gets to sacrifice himself as much as he wants, and they will literally go as far as bringing him back from the grave. He's got plot armor that strong. Yeah, the kind of plot armor that lets him survive destruction of his own timeline. That 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 severe plot armor. Oh yes. Um. So he'll he'll make good use of that Gepwood for quite some time. Oh. 
Our uh, last award is the the Babble Network Award, which goes to all the Vulcans in general for apparently being able to feel each other's deaths over light years of distance instantaneously for reasons. What do they win, Kepwin? The Vulcans win. Oh my God! Did George Lucas have one original idea? <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah, the, uh, the the Vulcans are uh, precursing the, uh, the the Jedi by a number of years here, and yeah, uh, Lucas, you yeah, you got a lot of praise, but a lot of it's undeserved. I felt the disturbance in the Force, <laughs> the Vulcan Force. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Force with a V. It's it's the same. It's different, actually. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, it's the same. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, I I'm running out of steam here. Gepo, take us away. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this, the galaxy's favorite game show. Next week, full-on undisputed allegory for Vietnam. In fact, it's like... There is a thing between Klingons and the Federation, and there's some people on a planet that get caught up in between the two. Yeah. <laughs> the planet neutral. Yeah. <laughs> it's called Neural, but like it's basically the planet neutral. The neutral planet. You just need to add one T. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, adding a T, I don't know, that would make me have, have to have some sort of, I don't know, strong emotion about uh, adding a T then, and we can't have that. I can't have a strong emotion one way or another. <clears throat> Tell my wife I said hello. <laughs> uh, we're going to have to have a, a, a list of those on hand, aren't we? <laughs> yep. Episode 19 of the second season of the American sci-fi television series, Star Trek, A Private Little War. Well, uh, if it's private, um, that, does that mean we can buy stocks in it? Probably. No, that would be public. If it's private, oh, you can't oh, buy stocks Oh, that's in right. It. That's right. We'll just have to buy the whole thing outright. Okay. <laughs> Crew discovers Klingon interference in the development of a formerly peaceful planet. And joins them in what becomes an arms race. Hmm. So that's when you can't use your feet and you have to like... Handstand, yeah. Wheelbarrow. Just your fingers. Gotta, gotta lift your entire body off uh, and then climb up a, a hill every day and, and train like that. And so you get ready for the arms race. Or become a ninja. I, I forget. Anyway. <laughs> I do not remember this episode at all. I'm not liking the looks of this Wikipedia page. I remember the title of the episode, but nothing really about it otherwise. Don Engel's original script had specific references to the Vietnam War, such as Mongolian-type clothes, Mm. and a character described as a Ho Chi Minh type. Interesting. I'm seeing a a guy in a a space gorilla uh, costume here. Oh, there's a space gorilla? That's the white-horned, fur-like gorilla creature pronounced Mugatu. Mugatu. Wait, isn't that the uh, the bad guy from Zoolander? Is it? I never <laughs> saw that. It's a very silly movie. Which is um, amusing since Zoolander was featured uh, as like the, the president of Malaysia or something like that. Anyway. <laughs> 
you know, it's not quite Polynesia, but it's, you know, is you, know, you know. Is he giving that guy a rifle while he's fighting a wampa? Also, we went from the forest yes. to wampas. So, I guess there's that. It's not on Ice Planet, though. It just looks like a wampa, though. <laughs> Anywho, I think we wander oh a, a, around too much on this as is. A little bit, but I'm not. What is with this weird orange fur bikini top? Um, I, I don't know. The, the 60s? <laughs> no one else on this planet is dressed like this. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, so, so I want to take us just a brief moment back. Uh, so the previous episode before this one, we did 2001, right? And yep. 2001 came out like a year after this stuff. Just, just, just think about that. Just let that settle for a little bit. <laughs> I guess they should have taken those monkey costumes. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, this looks weird. I hope this is better than it looks, because this looks like Davy Crockett in space. Davy, Davy Crockett, traveling through outer space. Oh, I would have watched the crap out of that when I was a kid. That was my favorite movie for a while. Whew. There is the, uh, the the song, which is I'm actually quoting here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Excellent. All right, you're good familiar with it. Good, 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 good. All right. Anywho, um, are we done filling up time? <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> We've almost hit an hour. <laughs> Grillo short guy, sorry. Um uh, uh social media, yeah. Um Yeah, do do those things. <laughs> like, subscribe. Also, I'm supposed to start telling people to rate us on iTunes, because it's what other podcasts do. So go review us somewhere. Tell them about how this nice ice cream truck music in the background totally wasn't distracting. <laughs> You know, th- thankfully, I cannot hear it. Otherwise, I'd be trying to sing along. <laughs> well, you can figure out what on earth wampas with horns and orange fur bikinis have to do with anything next week on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, the Federation Klingon Cold War screws up yet another planet. have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>